Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. And go down to verse 9, John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Father, that's what uh, we want to do today. We want to lift you up in praise. Even though there you are talking about the cross, it is because of the cross and you being lifted on that that we have the, the privilege of lifting you up. And so, Lord, be lifted up in every heart that is represented here and do that work that only you can do. You know where we all are, Lord. You know what each person in here needs. I pray you would meet that need this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. While an old proverb claims that ignorance can be bliss, Amanda Brisdane would be the first to tell you that ignorance can have unexpected consequences. Although Brisdane had gained 30 pounds in the last year, she attributed her weight gain to fatty foods and the fact that she had stopped smoking. But after several days of severe abdominal pain, so intense that she had to call in sick from work, the 26-year-old Renton, Washington woman finally went to the hospital. What she didn't expect was to return home with Alexander, her newborn son. Already a mother to a 14-month-old daughter, Brisendane was shocked when she was told that she was nine months pregnant. After all, she had not experienced the typical signs of pregnancy. Brisendane said, Everything was normal as far as I knew. I don't know how I didn't know. She then added, I just didn't know. That little story teaches us that what we don't know can affect us. The best antidote for spiritual ignorance is a faithful study of God's word so that we never have to echo Brizendine's admission. I don't know how I didn't know. I just didn't know. We've been following the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and we're going to see that this is brought out very very clearly this morning. Looking back on this conversation after his eventual conversion, I can almost imagine Nicodemus saying, I don't know how I didn't know. I just didn't know. 
Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Let's look at verse 9 together. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Nicodemus came by night, and he is still in the dark. He could not understand the new birth, even after Jesus has explained it to him. The Lord will clearly state in verse 10 that Nicodemus' knowledge of the Old Testament should have given him the light that he needed. There are actually two sides to Nicodemus' unbelief. Intellectually, while he acknowledged Jesus to be a teacher sent from God, he was unwilling at this point to accept him as God. Spiritually, he was very reluctant to admit that he himself was a helpless sinner because that was unthinkable for the proud members of the Pharisees who were the self-confessed religious elite of Israel. So it would seem that the teacher of the Jews knew the facts recorded in the scripture, but he could not yet understand the truth recorded in scripture. This is notable since the original language animates that Nicodemus was not only a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. Which is why Jesus was amazed that Nicodemus, who may have been the primary spiritual teacher of the nation, would have such a difficult time understanding such basic things. While it's clear to even a baby Christian today is a total mystery to this respected scholar. We must remember, however, that he has long held cherished views. The thought of freedom and the new life that comes from the Spirit of God is foreign to him. He is totally baffled. And yet Jesus continues to speak truth to him, even though he may not completely understand everything at this particular time. As you read the Gospels, you will notice that Jesus was not interested in shallow responses or pseudo-quick conversions. He refused to compromise the truth or give false hope to anyone. Instead, instead of making it easy for people to believe, Jesus sometimes turned away more people than he received. Take the rich young ruler, for example. He eagerly sought out Jesus and asked him sincerely, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Yet the Bible says he went away grieving and unsaved. Why? Because Jesus put his finger on the one thing the rich man valued the most, which was his money. The danger for us is we can read that story and shake our heads and cluck our tongues at the foolishness of that rich young ruler. We may even convince ourselves that even if we were rich, there is no way we would let anything come between us and the Lord. But as I study the record of the rich young ruler and his obviously wrong choice, it got me to thinking. No matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, take penicillin, wash dishes in running water, surf the internet, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on a cell phone. And so if he was considered rich, then what are we? 
All I want us to see is God Almighty will not vacate his rightful place in our lives to any other thing. And you know what? I love that about the Lord. I love clarity and simplicity in my dealings with people and my God. Throughout their conversation, Jesus refused to soften the truth simply to gain the approval of this influential religious leader. Instead, he spoke with clarity and precision, confronting Nicodemus' misconceptions and telling him exactly what he needed to hear. And that is also my goal when I stand behind this pulpit. I want you to know I care about you enough to tell you the simple, unadulterated truth. And I want you to do the same to me. Verse 11, please. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The we in verse 11 is most likely referring to Jesus and John the Baptist. The you are Nicodemus and the other influential religious leaders. Already enough things have happened in the ministry of Jesus that they should be convinced for all those who have seen these things. And now the earthly things that Jesus alluded to was probably the phenomena that he would use for illustrations such as the wind, which we looked at last week. And so if Nicodemus is unable to grasp the meaning of spiritual truth as conveyed by concrete analogy, how would he do it if, he was, if it was couched in an abstract statement? Let's be honest. There was much in Christ's teaching that he honestly could not understand. Yet Jesus seemed to end the conversation with him, not by stressing the things that were beyond the rabbi's knowledge, but by faulting him for not believing in the things that were within his knowledge. Almost everybody knows the difference between a believer and a skeptic. But I am not sure that everyone knows the difference between an honest skeptic and a dishonest skeptic. An honest skeptic is someone who may have doubts about certain truths or doctrines, but who will face up to them when he is presented with evidence and he will alter his life as a result. A dishonest skeptic is someone who has doubts about truth and doctrine, but who will not face up to the evidence. Thus, when he is blasted out of one foxhole of unbelief, he will immediately take refuge in a second. If he is blasted out of that foxhole, he will begin to look around for a third. But the true seeker will examine the evidence and with an open mind will be willing to change any preconceived ideas they may have. I'm currently reading a book by J. Warner Wallace. He was an atheist and a cold case detective for like 30 years. Eventually he decided he would treat Christianity the exact same way he would approach a murder investigation and just see where the evidence would lead. He uses actual stories from his murder investigations and then ties them in to his investigation of the Bible. And after a fair and balanced investigation, he became a Christian solely on the basis of the evidence. I recommend the book to you. It's called Cold Case Christianity. You can get it on Amazon for $18.04.
And for a limited time, if you mention my name, you will get a five... No, not really. I don't know why I say stuff like that. But anyway, back to our point. Do we have to completely understand every microscopic aspect of truth before we accept it? Now, some think so. But in kingdom living, there are always two parts to God's promises. One, his part laid out in Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And then two, for it is grace that you have been saved through faith. That is our part. Faith is accepting God's truth, even if we don't completely understand every aspect of what it means at our point of salvation. It's kind of like turning on a light switch. You don't have to completely understand electricity for it to work. To reiterate last week, like the blind man, all I know is I once was blind, but now I see. And although nothing in this passage suggests that Nicodemus was converted that evening, we know that he never forgot this conversation that he had with Jesus. We know this because later on, he boldly defended him before the Sanhedrin and helped Joseph of Arimathea prepare his body for burial. These are actions that indicate the presence of authentic faith in the life of Nicodemus. It is my belief that sometime after this memorable evening he spent with Jesus, but before the crucifixion, Nicodemus came to understand sovereign grace and experienced the reality of the new birth. Verse 13, please. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. In Proverbs 34.4, the question is asked, Who has ascended up into heaven and descended? And the expected answer is, nobody. For as Jesus brings out here, the one who can ascend into heaven is the one who has first descended. This verse is somewhat difficult to to interpret and is often misunderstood. It's also frequently used by those who want to find contradictions in the Bible. But Jesus was not teaching that no one had ever gone to heaven before. Obviously, the Old Testament saints had gone to heaven or paradise when they died. And Enoch and Elijah were taken to heaven without dying. And so we must keep this verse in its context. And its context is, in verses 10 through 12, we see that Jesus is talking about his authority and the validity of his teaching. Then in verse 13, Jesus explains why he is uniquely qualified to teach about the kingdom of God. Namely because he alone has come down from heaven and possesses that knowledge to teach people about heaven. Jesus alone has seen the Father And he alone is qualified to declare God and to make him known. Really, the gist of verse 13 is simply this. Jesus was saying, none of your earthly teachers can really teach you about heaven because none of them have actually been there. However, I have been there. In fact, it is my home. I have come down to you from heaven and I have brought with me experiential knowledge of that place. My testimony therefore carries weight because I can tell you the truth about salvation. This gives him a unique view of the future. 
The Greek word that is used there for ascended is in the perfect tense. That means it's an event that has already been accomplished. And so when Jesus is referring to his ascent, he is referring to his resurrection. He is the one who first descended to live among us for 33 years, and then after his resurrection, he once again ascended back into heaven. But here he's talking about it as if it, is, as if it has already happened because he has already seen its fulfillment since he is outside of time. Now the completed work of Jesus on the cross has always been the hope of mankind both before and after his death. It's always been that way and it still is today. The only way for people to be born from above is to accept what has already been done. So in answer to Nicodemus' question, how can these things be, Jesus suggests that Nicodemus' spiritual perception is indeed very low. As a ruler of Israel, he ought to have a better grasp of spiritual matters. He tells Nicodemus that he has been speaking to him in earthly terms in an attempt to make the matter less complex. Then he uses an illustration from Hebrew history. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. If we are to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to go back to a strange story in the Old Testament to which he is referring. The story is told in Numbers chapter 21. Let me give you the background for the story. The Israelites have been complaining against God, grumbling about their journey and their apparent lack of food and water. They did not like the miraculous manna that God was giving them every single day. Even though God was meeting every one of their needs, they still found reason to complain about what they didn't have. Sound familiar? Oh no, Nadine, the pastor has went from preaching to meddling. Anyway, the event took place during Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering before entering the promised land. The people had been traveling through the desert under the leadership of Moses. They have recently traveled from the neighborhood of Mount Hor near the Red Sea to the borders of Edom. Now this is the area in the Near East which is most closely associated with Petra and is some of the most inhospitable area in all of the earth. And so as a result of their difficulties, the people began to murmur against God and Moses. They've done this many times before, claiming that they had been led into the wilderness just to die. And so as a judgment against the people's incessant complaining, the Lord sent venomous snakes to, invest, to infest the camp. Well, they started getting bit by these serpents, and now they're dying left and right, which really did have the effect of curbing the complaining, by the way. In desperation, the Israelites begged Moses to intercede on their behalf, and Moses' petition was answered with a display of divine grace as God showed mercy to his rebellious people. He instructed Moses to make a bronze replica of a snake and raise it on a on a pole before the camp. Those who were bitten would be healed if they would only look at it, thereby acknowledging their guilt and expressing their faith in God's forgiveness 
and healing power. The heart of the story lies in God's promise that everyone who had been bitten by the fiery serpents needed only to look at the bronze serpent on the pole to be cured. When I typed that, I thought, this is the first instance of that event called See You at the Pole. Never mind. As a side note, please notice the people who were bitten were not commanded to buy some relic of the serpent or possess some fragment of the pole upon which the serpent of bronze had been erected. The notion that salvation can come by relics is perhaps the most absurd and totally pagan idea that has ever been associated with Christianity. And yet there are millions of people today who believe that they come closer to heaven by adoring a piece of the cross or the bones of a saint. For instance, during the Middle Ages, those who traveled to the Holy Land were asked to bring souvenirs back. Just as a visitor to the Far East might be asked to bring back souvenirs today. Now the Arabs, who are good businessmen, quickly supplied the demand and did so well that it is said that during the Middle Ages, people possessed enough particles of the supposed true cross to build several cathedrals. Now, eventually the possession of such relics gave way to worship and to the belief that a person could be saved by touching or possessing them. At the Vatican today, people have kissed the statue of Peter so much on his toes that his toes are now gone. Being a good Protestant, if I ever got to the Vatican, I'd like to buy some corn chips and glue them onto Peter's feet. If you're new here, that made no sense to you whatsoever. I mean, it's not exactly the 95 thesis, but one does what one can. But did you know the same thing happened with this bronze serpent erected by Moses until God had to have Hezekiah step in and destroy it? Someone apparently preserved the serpent and it remained in Israel for hundreds of years, gaining more and more worshipers. At last, when he became king, Hezekiah broke it into pieces, the, the bronze snake that Moses had made. For up until that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Thus does God speak to the supposed virtues of the relics of a ritualistic religion. There is no salvation in pieces of bone, rusty metal saints, and supposed holy water. I threw all that in for free. Back to our account. Maybe some of them thought, are you serious? You want me to look at a snake on a pole. I have like maybe five minutes to live, and it's going to take me four minutes to get to the pole. That kind of cure doesn't make any sense. A real snake bit me, but I look, if I look at a fake snake, I will be healed. That makes absolutely no sense at all. And maybe right after they said that, they dropped dead right where they stood. Now someone else looks at them laying there dead and says to themselves, 
I agree it does sound pretty crazy that looking at a bronze serpent can save my life. But what do I have to lose? If I do nothing, I'm going to die like everyone else. And so I'm going to believe that God means what he says. He then goes over to the pole, looks at it, and is instantly healed right there on the spot. Now this story in Numbers 21 was certainly familiar to Nicodemus. It's a story of sin. For the nation of Israel had rebelled against God and had to be punished. But it's also a story of grace because Moses interceded for the people and God provided a remedy. Any stricken person who looked at the serpent would immediately be healed. Some people have wondered why Jesus would liken himself to a serpent. Well, think back to the Garden of Eden and the serpent that deceived Eve. This is where sin all originated. And because of this, speaking of Jesus, God will say, um, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He took him who knew no sin to become our sin on, sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By this time, of course, you have understood that the only thing required of the dying Israelites was that they should believe God's word about the serpent on the pole and look to it as God had commanded them. In the same way, we are to look to the cross of Christ. We have all been bitten by sin as they were bitten. Mankind is dying from sin as they were dying. To remedy this, God sent his Son in the likeness of sin that we might believe on him and not perish. The stricken Israelites were cured by obediently looking apart from any works of righteousness on their own and hope and dependence on God's word at the elevated bronze serpent. In the same way, anyone who looks in faith alone at the crucified Christ will be cured from sin's deadly poison and will have eternal life. But please notice, in the camp of Israel, the solution to the serpent problem was not killing the serpents, making medicine, pretending they were not there, passing anti-serpent laws, or climbing the pole. The answer was in looking by faith at the uplifted serpent. Now God sent his son to die not only for Israel, but for the whole world. So how is a person born from above? How is he or she saved from perishing eternally? By believing on Jesus Christ and looking to him in faith. Here in Numbers 21, there was no doubt those who said, you're telling me that all I have to do to be healed is to look at a snake on a pole. What good will that do? I need some anti-venom. And because of their stubbornness, they would die unnecessarily. Now please hear me. In the same way, there are people today who will not look at the one who hung on the cross. Instead, they will say, all I need is some Netflix binging or a beer or a hot fudge sundae. All I need is something else to fill this hole that is in my soul. But God said the only thing that we must do is to realize we've been bitten and then look to the cross. The one who does that will be made whole. It's just that simple. Why did looking at the bronze serpent save them? Because that is the way God had provided to save them. 
In the same way, they were saved physically by looking at the serpent in obedience for salvation. We are saved spiritually by looking in obedience to the cross of Christ. And we are saved from that greater snake that originated in the Garden of Eden, the snake of sin. Sometimes people ask why believing only upon the cross of Christ is necessary for salvation. What about all the other religions? It's really simple. Looking in obedience to the cross is the only way because God has chosen that and that alone as the only means to salvation. People say that sounds terribly narrow and exclusive. Please get this if you get nothing else today. The incredible thing isn't that there's only one way. The amazing thing is that there's a way at all. So in the story of Numbers, no matter how horribly they were bitten, how many times they had been bitten, or how sick they were, the opportunity for salvation was there. So too, even the most degraded and miserable sinner who looks to Christ will be saved. You don't know my life, Pastor Bill. I've lived in the gutter a long time. And I have great news for you. He can say from the uttermost to the guttermost. Isaiah proclaims, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. We don't have to climb that pole and hang with him there. We don't have to do something for him. We simply just have to look to him in faith. The only difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. As we finish up this morning, Charlie read a copy of Pilgrim's Progress while plundering through his grandfather's belongings. Through this book, he became aware of his sinfulness and depravity. He carried this guilt for quite some time and anxiously desired to be rid of it. He went from church to church, hearing message after message, and was so despondent he would do anything to relieve this burden of guilt. One morning it was snowing very heavily in the town in which he lived, and so he attended the primitive Methodist chapel that was very close to his house. When he arrived there, there was only about 15 people in attendance, and even the preacher himself couldn't make it. A layman in the church came forward to preach, and he read a passage from Isaiah which said, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The unprepared substitute didn't really have much else to say, so he just kept repeating the text. He said, A man need not go to college to learn to look, he shouted. Anyone can look. A child can look. About that time he saw the lone visitor sitting to one side, and he pointed at him and said, Young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Charlie would later recall, he pointed that bony finger at me and screamed only the way a primitive Methodist can scream. It was then and there he found the answer that he had sought. He immediately looked to God and according to his own testimony, his guilt and sin fell from him like shackles. The young man did look by faith. And that was how the man who was now known as the Prince of Preachers was converted. You may know Charlie by his proper name, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Father, we do look to you.
let us realize that there is no other salvation under heaven by which a man or woman can be saved. You are our only chance, Lord. There is no plan B. And so I pray that you would make yourself real through your Holy Spirit to every heart here. Let us see where we truly stand with you and draw us to yourself. That's in Christ's name. Amen.